Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Aplastic Anemia and MDS International Foundation continuing podcast series. We're coming to you today thanks to generous support from individuals, donors, and our corporate partners, including Celgene. My name is Alice Hauck, Senior Director of Professional Programs at AAMDSIF. Today, we're going to be speaking about high-risk MDS and progression to secondary AML. Our speaker today is Dr. Tiffany Tanaka from the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Tanaka is a attending physician at the, in the Division of Hematology Oncology at the UCSD Moore's Cancer Center, and she is an assistant professor at UCSD. Welcome, Dr. Tanaka. Oh, hi, Alice. Thanks for having me. What group of patients are more likely to develop high-risk MDS and progress to AML? Sure. Um, this is a very common question that we get in the clinic. Um, we know that about one-third of patients with MDS will develop AML, um, and there is increasing research data that backs certain mutations will predict this. Um, however, what's a little bit tricky is that a lot of these leukemic mutations are not present at diagnosis of MDS, and so it's a little bit hard to prospective prospectively know which patients will develop AML later in their lifetime. Um, there was a recent study, however, that looked beyond DNA mutations, and they also looked at gene expression. Gene expression is the instructions we use to tell us which proteins to make. Um, and what the authors found, um, this was a Japanese group, uh, Shiozawa, they found that there were two distinct categories between MDS patients. And one of these categories were the ones that tended to progress to AML. And so there is a stronger movement in the field that perhaps we should divide MDS, knowing that perhaps some group of patients will just progress to marrow failure, while one group may be more predisposed to leukemia progression. Can a bone marrow biopsy tell my doctor if I'm likely to progress from MDS to AML? Yes, um, there are features of a bone marrow biopsy that will hint at progression to AML. Uh, for example, um, if there are a high number of leukemia plasts present in the bone marrow, that is a pretty strong sign that AML progression will happen. Um, currently, we are categorizing MDS and AML into two separate categories, um, but uh, many clinicians tend to think of MDS to AML as a continuum. And um, while there is a boundary of 20% BLAS or more defining AML from MDS, um, uh, practically speaking, we largely treat the disease similarly, where if you're an MDS patient with um, a high burden of BLAS, uh, we will treat it pretty similar to a patient with secondary AML. What is the prognosis once the MDS progresses to AML? Sure. The, um, unfortunately, the prognosis of AML from MDS is quite poor. Um, we know that if a patient has already received treatment for MDS, um, typically with the only approved treatment, which is called azacitidine or decitabine, and then they get an AML afterwards, they, the average or median survival is about five months. Um, we also know that if patients with AML from MDS if they're treated with traditional intensive chemotherapy, the response rates tend to be quite low, typically on the order of 30%. And even with the response, the survival is less than a year. Um, however, this 
prognosis is changing as there have been many novel agents approved in the last couple of years. And so we're eagerly waiting to see um, how the survival might prove with even newer combinations, including these drugs. So you've elaborated on this to some extent already, but uh, tell us how treatment changes when high-risk MDS progresses to AML, and also what are the treatment options? Again, you've you've touched on some of this, but let's go into a bit more detail. Yes, definitely. Um, One um, thing about AML progression is that the mutations that tend to spur this progression are in a specific set that are different from the mutations that actually give rise to the MDS. For example, um, they are mutations in genes that confer high proliferation or high blood cell um, production. These mutations um, include those such as FLT3 and IDH, and we actually have new treatments that target these very mutations. Um, We know that when these drugs are used um, as a single agent, however, the response rates aren't too high. Um, For the IDH inhibitors, for example, they're on the order of about 30%. And um, this is where we're trying to adjust our expectations. It makes sense that the response rates aren't too high because these mutations are later events, and therefore you're not targeting the whole disease. Um, However, um, in 2018, we saw three new drugs approved for AML. One of them included venetoclax, um, and venetoclax, when combined with another drug, such as azacitidine or low-dose cytarabine, the response rates actually were much higher, um, on the order of about 60%, even 70% with certain types of mutations. And what was perhaps even better is that patients respond faster to this combination usually within one to two months, where traditionally with azacitidine alone, it can take several months, about three to four months or or even longer. Um, So we're looking forward to seeing more data for more combination treatments, and I think that's probably where the field is heading. Can a high-risk MDS or secondary AML patient get a bone marrow transplant? And if so, what are the factors determining if that's a good option for them? Oh, sure. Certainly, um, a patient with high-risk MDS or secondary AML can get a bone marrow transplant. Um, The factors that determine if it's a good option include the patient's age, um, their overall fitness level, you know, how active they're able to be, and what other illnesses they have. Um, You know, if there's uh, active heart disease or renal failure, these are all big components of determining who will be, who will do well with the transplant. Um, An area that we are still trying to understand is the disease biology and um, how much that contributes and how much that should alter our decision. For example, we know if patients have certain mutations, such as TP53, they tend to relapse quickly after a transplant. However, transplants are only shot at a cure, and so it's still um, offered to all patients of a decent age and decent um, um, fitness level. Is the transplant something that should be discussed upon the diagnosis of the AML for that process to begin to be explored? How would you as a physician advise a patient in that situation? Sure. Um, if I've got a patient that is um, in their mid-70s or lower um, of a good fitness level 
and with um, well-controlled um, comorbidities or other illnesses that are well-controlled, then I think that discussion should happen very early on. Um, usually, I, I recommend that a patient gets fully restaged or um, their bone marrow biopsy is repeated and also their mutation testing is repeated. And while we've got all of that going on, um, meeting the bone marrow transplant specialist, um, even if a transplant is not done right away, say a patient has an IDH mutation and you treat them with that sort of drug, um, we know that the disease won't be fully cured with these treatments and therefore um, an active plan for transplant should be discussed and determined if it's even a good option or not. And are there many clinical trials underway for secondary AML? Of course, there had to have been several uh, a few years ago as the new, the recently uh, approved medications that you mentioned were uh, tested and approved as part of that process. But are there still ongoing clinical trials that patients might consider as well? Yes, definitely. What's been a good approach, I think, is including both secondary AML and higher-risk MDS um, within the same trial. Um, again, because we tend to think of high-risk MDS and secondary AML as the same disease continuum. And so it makes sense to include these patients in the same type of trial. Um, we saw a lot of exciting presentations at the last um, ASH conference, the American Society of Hematology, um, and a lot of these trials focused on combination treatments with an azacitidine or dicitabine backbone and adding a second drug. Um, so, for example, um, venetoclax has already been approved in that fashion, um, but what we're seeing now is um, other novel agents, um, such as one that targets TP53. Um, we also saw a different drug that targets um, CD47, or the supposed don't eat me signal, and therefore it uh, renders the tumor cell to be recognized by the immune cell and um, therefore eaten or phagocytosed. So those are a couple drugs that um, are in the pipeline and we're um, eagerly waiting to see uh, what sort of response rates and survival rates um, we get. And that really gets to the importance of, of personalized medicine and for patients being uh, comfortable with asking questions about their treatment options and uh, and seeking a second opinion if they feel as if they are not uh, having their their questions answered or their concerns addressed with so many different options available for them. Yeah, I um, wholeheartedly agree with the second opinion. Um, a lot of clinical trials, it's impossible to open everyone at every center. And if there is a trial at a nearby institution that's a better fit for the patient, a better fit for the type of mutations they might have, um, then I am glad for the patient to go there um, because it's the best treatment for them or for their particular type of disease. Um, also, if a patient might be at a smaller center with less experience with AML, perhaps they don't have a transplant specialist team, um, then I do think it's um, important that a patient visits a bigger center that does have a full-fledged transplant team and has a full-fledged um, clinical trials office, and therefore they can see what all the options are, as long as it's financially possible for the patient. And also, how does secondary AML differ from other types of AML or acute myeloid leukemia? 
We know there are other types of that, but of course there are differences. Not all of them resulted uh, from progression from high-risk MDS. Can you explain the differences? Oh, definitely. Um, The disease biology between a secondary AML and then what we call a de novo AML or an AML that um, arises as AML from the start, um, they are very different. Um, Secondary AML in general tends to be more aggressive and in general, the prognosis tends to be poorer, um, meaning that the survival is less and the response to treatment is less. Um, but that being said, with these novel treatment combinations, we're seeing these improvements in survival and response rates. Um, and so perhaps secondary AML, um, one day we won't say that it's um, you know the worst partner compared to de novo. And is there anything else you would add for uh, patients to consider if they have received this diagnosis of high-risk MDS and progression to AML, or if they have high-risk MDS now and are concerned about progressing to AML? What else might you tell uh, patients that we haven't addressed already today? Oh, sure. Um, I wanted to really emphasize the point of seeking out a center that has experience with MDS and AML. Um, These are fairly rare um, blood disorders um, and fairly rare cancers in general. Um, And so it's helpful if you go to an institution where there's a physician that treats these diseases frequently. What's really important in this era of new drugs that are targeted drugs is to make sure that a mutation panel is uh, redone when the disease changes because it could be that there's a new mutation that might offer a new treatment. That being said, as I mentioned earlier, it's good to have realistic expectations. Um, Targeted drugs are very alluring. Most of them are oral. Most of them have lower side effects than chemotherapy and transplant, Um, but they don't lead to a cure. And so um, if the patient is young and of good age and fitness, um, transplant should still be seriously considered at an experienced center. How about advice for caregivers of patients that have been diagnosed with the secondary AML progressing from high-risk MDS? Do you have any, any words for them to consider as caregivers of patients like this? Oh, yeah, that's a really fantastic question. Um, The caregivers become a really critical part of the treatment. Um, Most patients with AML and MDS, they require very frequent visits to a cancer center. Um, Even on the days when they're not getting treatment at the cancer center, um, they will likely need to come back a few times per week. This is to check the blood counts and to give transfusions. And so what this means is um, frequent trips and transportation by the caregiver. Um, It also means that while the patient's at home monitoring for those symptoms, um, that might um, indicate that a patient should be seen sooner for a visit or a transfusion. These things include looking out for bleeding, looking out for fevers and infections. Um, Often the patient might be too ill to recognize these things, and it does fall on the caregiver to do so. Thank you so much, Dr. Tanaka, for informing us today about the importance of understanding high-risk MDS and progression to AML and some of the many factors to to consider in treatment options and clinical trials and also the importance of a patient really taking charge of their care and asking questions and knowing what what can be expected, at least to some extent, during treatment for, for this disease. 
And as always, please contact us at www.aamds.org if you have questions or need more information or if you'd like to be connected with a, a support group or a peer support network volunteer who can also support you in this journey. Thank you.